Coming up on this week's A Lively Experiment, could the westbound side of the Washington Bridge need to be replaced? It's one of the options on the table for the Rhode Island Department of Transportation. And the Ethics Commission dismisses a complaint against Governor McKee. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... Hi, I'm John Hazen White, Jr. For over 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program in Rhode Island PBS. Joining us on this week's panel, attorney and former state representative Mike Marcello, Steve Frias, national committee man for the Rhode Island Republican Party, and political strategist Lisa Pelosi. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's Lively. I'm Jim Hummel. An estimated three-month fix for the closed portion of the Washington Bridge is off the table as state officials found the damage is worse than they originally thought and now have not ruled out a total demolition and rebuild of the westbound lanes. Governor McKee did himself no favors this week when he tried to minimize the disruption for the tens of thousands of drivers who have had their lives upended trying to cross the bridge every day. You guys are a good example of this. You all live on the west of the bridge, but it is affecting you in various ways. Mike, you're the solicitor in East Providence. Just getting back and forth has been a challenge. It's been difficult, not only for me, but for people who live in East Providence, people who live in Barrington, Warren, getting across that bridge. It, it, it is a difficult um, scenario. I think everyone was hoping for a three-month fix, but it looks like probably a three-month fix is not in the works. Um, I think everyone is working really hard to try to figure out how we're going to get through this if it lasts more than three months. But um, obviously the news wasn't that great. But I think, you know, I think we need to wait. Um, I think the governor is very clear that and uh, Director Elviti, we're waiting for the studies to come out to see exactly what uh, needs to be done. I think the speculation has been not helpful because it's the rumor mill about oh, it's coming down. It's not coming down. We don't know yet. Um, but obviously it is a problem for the people who live in the East Bay and even the people on the West Side. So. Oh, that's true. I can tell you. <laughs> oh, Lisa was a little Just late to taping this morning. Today. We're taping this on a Friday. There's residual everywhere. It is. You know, so the first few days going 95 north, there was nobody on the highway because people were working from home and trying to figure it out. Now you have the two-lane backup that's going 195 east already coming back to Route 37 or even the airport. You know, there are times that the backup is happening. And then on top of it, you get people who figure out, oh, let me ride the left lanes and get around Thurber's and then have to scoot over. So it's, you know, just such traffic issues. But there are so many questions that need to be answered. For the um, director of transportation in December to say two months ago, the bridge was inspected, no problems, and then all of a sudden we're talking about perhaps total reconstruction or rebuild of it a few months later. It just makes you wonder you know, how thorough that inspection was to begin with. Yeah, and it didn't start with Peter Alvini. This bridge is many, many years old, but it makes you wonder who was minding the store all these years. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, people complain about things in government all the time, but this is a major problem that's affecting people's daily lives all across the state. And it is amazing, as Lisa was saying, is like just a few months ago, it was A-OK. -okay. And then all of a sudden, the young engineer shows up, <laughs> finds a terrible problem, and now we're talking about shutting it down and tearing it down? This is like an incredible level of incompetence, and it's going to be, I, I, we're just at the beginning of what is going to be a long process with a lot of questions that are going to have to be answered, and I think some people's political careers may come to an end after this. I do think that the House Oversight Committee said they're going to begin hearings on that. I think that'll bring some transparency. Think I think it is. I think it'll bring some transparency. I think it'll uh, answer some of the questions that we have, uh, who knew what, when, those yeah. type of issues, and I think the House is doing the right thing in doing it. But, you know, we can't, we still have to solve the problem, but it's also no, uh, it's good to know how we got there. 
And the communications on the governor and the Department of Transportation has been very weak. It's almost been a case study of not what not to do when it comes to this. When it started off that we learned in early December that they had to shut it down that quick uh, press conference on Monday, they knew on Friday that there were potential problems. They had the whole weekend to put a, um, a program in place, a PR program in place too, and they didn't. It was just kind of haphazard the way that they did it. And then for the first few days, it was only one way, and then they finally figured out how we can make it two ways. And they're saying it's going to be three months. And now they're saying, well, we can't even give you a timeline anymore because we have to wait for the study. So the communication's been poor. It doesn't engender confidence. No, <laughs> and the empathy too. It's just, you know, we're, we're the state officials saying we're really realizing the pain that this is causing the disruption. And I'm not getting that. It's more of a diminishing, oh, you're only adding 10 or 15 minutes right. onto your commute. So here's, and yeah. here's where the governor, I said he did no favors. The governor lives in Cumberland. So I would invite him. We have a couple of extra rooms at our house now that the kids are out. <laughs> he can come. He can bring Willa if he wants. He can bring the state trooper and go from my house every day in Barrington. Now, my wife works at Rhode Island Hospital. She goes every day. It's a 15 to 18 minute drive. It is a 50 minute drive now. And that's each way. You think, oh, she gets there. Then on the East Bay. So I think, I don't know what was going through the governor's head when he, and he said, if you didn't hear the quote, he said, well, let's not exaggerate. If it takes you 20 minutes already and now it's 50, that's an extra, you know, adding on. People, I mean, it's, think of all the, the lost predict productivity and hours and all of that. And I just, I don't get what he's saying. He has been to East Providence. Um, I know that for a fact. And he's been <laughs> not there. every day. Not every day, he but he's been there. He doesn't live in the East he, Bay. He doesn't live in the East Bay, but he's been there. He's been talking to the businesses. He's met with some people. So I think he's doing, maybe his choice of words weren't, weren't the best, but I think he's yeah. trying. I mean, it's an intractable situation. He's, we've got to solve it, obviously. But, um, you know, again, he didn't create the problem. Um, he just has, just has to deal with it. You also wonder where the Federal Highway Administration is in this. How many millions, tens of millions of dollars they put into that bridge? over the years for what uh, just think about how much money we spend on our roads and bridges uh, over the last few years we're going to improve our roads and bridges and what at the end uh, 10 years into this we have Washington Bridge on the verge of falling down it's literally they're talking right. about how to tear it down there's something very wrong with how we're managing our funds in this state uh, with our roads and bridges. If you could give them advice, what what do you think would restore some confidence? Because I think people, it's eroded even from December. People like, who's running the show? What are we doing? What's going on here? What, what's the messaging that they should be giving? Well, the I, you know, they're providing updates, but now they made it sound this week, well, hey, we're going to just put off talking about this because we have a lot of reports that we're waiting to come in, so they're not going to have any kind of updates on it. I'm glad that they pulled away from doing a timeline because when, when they said three months, people thought, okay, we can figure this I out. I can make it to March or April. Right. So now I'm glad they're not saying it's going to take, you know, 10 years to get this bridge done, <laughs> you know, so. But it, but it could be pretty long if it's a total rebuild. Right? It could. I mean, like, look, when they built the bridge in the 1960s, the kind of the version they're using, the one today, there's always been Washington bridges in the past. It took almost a decade. Mm. So this, I don't know how long it's going to take. I'm not an engineer, but it doesn't sound like it's going to be done in the summer. This is going to be multi-years. And so the, the 10, 15 minute waits that people, that the governors talk about, it's not 10, 15 minutes anyway. It's like a half hour for a lot of people or more. This is going to go on for years. I wouldn't want to be running for re-election in 2026 <laughs> with these kind of traffic jams. I do think we have to wait till the reports. It's a lot of speculation as to how long it might take, what kind of repairs are being being made. So it's it's obviously a, a uh, we need a long-term solution. But right now we got a, we got a short-term fix. We got to figure out how to get the people over the river. All right, the uh, and but not through the woods. Um, <laughs> the other big uh, story this week involving Governor McKee. 
The Ethics Commission dismissed a complaint against him. This goes back to a dinner with the Scout people. You remember the whole Philadelphia fiasco a year ago. Uh, the state Republican Party had filed an ethics complaint, which got dismissed. Steve, you were involved in this complaint, and I know there was a lot of criticism from the governor and the speaker uh, on a separate case that got dismissed about the Republican Party. But John Marion from Common Cause said something interesting to me and, and other reporters is that it's not it's not by the by the law it should have been dismissed but the behavior was problematic right so let's let me just try to phrase it this way first i respect the decision of the ethics commission um but the bottom line is on the mckee case mckee came up what i call the clueless defense did he sit there and have a lunch that was paid for by a lobbyist yes he had a steak he's claiming is i didn't know it was paid by the lobbyist i left and i thought it was taken care of now, what I find skeptical about that, Jim, is that when he was confronted about this issue in June, when it all came out, what was his reaction? If Jeff Britt wants me to pay him back for, his, for the lunch, I will. That doesn't sound like somebody who would have said, oh, I thought my finance chairman paid for it. I'll fix this. There must be a mistake, a confusion. And so actually, I heard an indifference there. And the second thing is that he has, a, you know, he has been fined by the Ethics Commission before for not reporting a trip to Taiwan. So... When he was lieutenant governor. When he was lieutenant governor. So that's one thing there on the legality of it. But the other thing is the bigger picture. This is an out-of-state company that wanted to do business in Rhode Island. What did they have to do to do that? They hired a lobbyist. They had to go to lunch to give donations to the governor. Then they, their lobbyist paid for the lunch. And then a bunch of administration officials went down to Philadelphia on a gift-grabbing spree. And then at the end of all this... They lose a contract. Well, I think what was troubling to me was that the, the donations came pretty quickly after the lunch. That, that's not a good look. Well, the, the donations were given to the, at, at the lunch. Right, right, know? right. And then I went back to look at an article that was put out right when it happened, and his campaign spokesman um, said that he didn't know who would, in advance who would be there. And I'm thinking, okay, here's a governor leaving the state house to go to an event or a lunch and not knowing who's going to be there. But even broadly, so maybe he didn't violate the gift rule because he ended up, you know, supposedly paying for it. But look what happened here. During a work day, he meets with his campaign person to meet with lobbyists for people who are doing business before the state, and then he leaves taking um, campaign donations. I just, you know, the, that, to me, that's just such a bad look and makes people a little cynical about politics, you know, and how government works. Michael? Um, I, you know, it's not a good look. It's all, yeah, I don't think it's a good look. But um, I think they, they had the hearing. They came up with the decision. And I think we just have to respect that decision. And did the decision, uh, you've seen a lot of ethics cases. Did it surprise you or not? Not really. I mean, because, I mean, I think it was a good defense. I mean, it, it, it was the clueless defense. It's not like it's a, it's a <laughs> legitimate defense that was, you know, adopted unanimously by the ethics commission. So, um, you know. Okay. Last week. Lesson learned, I think. Sorry. Any final word on that? No. Right. Oh, I have a final word. Okay. You know, to the media, if, if the media didn't reveal it, would that lunch have ever been appropriately paid for? Right. Well, and a lot of that was, this goes back to, Mike, you've been uh, a champion of APRA reform over the years. We're going to see whether that happens again this year. The whole getting of the email about the scout trip and all of that, all of this might not have come forward had it not been for That's that true. original 
reporting. Um, as we were taping last week, the budget had just been released. It is a proposed $13.7 billion budget. For a little bit of context, I was looking back at some of our lively shows from 2020. We were talking about a $10 billion budget. Now, we know a lot of this is the APRA money beginning to disappear. Lisa, let me begin with you. I thought that it was going to be maybe a billion less or so maybe, say, and so it's 300000 less. Your yeah. thoughts? You know, I'm not a math major, right? So I'm trying to figure out the <laughs> Just like Steve's not an engineer. You know, you know, figure out the dollars here. But if the drop in federal funds was over $7 billion, I thought, okay, what was the inflation from 2020 to now? And we kept hearing from the um, General Assembly folks that a lot of this is just one-time spending. One-time spending is not going to be ongoing. So I thought it would be a, a more of a drop than it is right now. And I'm just wondering, what are we paying for since you know 2020? that's going to be ongoing right now. So and the speaker had always said, I want to make an investment, not exactly an expenditure, so it would be a one-time non-recurring. Right. And you wonder how much of that now is, right? Yeah, I, I do think there's some residual funds that are still left over. that you, yeah. So maybe the right. next cycle. I, I think the next maybe. budget cycle will be the gonna, real, when it really, really hits. So so what did you think? Any? I mean, when I, my last budget that I voted for, I think, was $9 billion, <laughs> and that was in 2018 not or 16. That long ago. Not that long ago. So, I mean, it's a, a huge number. Um, I thought it would drop a little bit more. More, yeah. um, but it's, you know, it's, it doesn't seem to be offset by any tax increases. So that's what makes me think that there are still some residual funds left over that the, we're kind of you know tap tap into. I know at the municipal level. Um, they're most concerned about the drop in school aid and where that's where that's how and, that's going and to a couple of key communities are, are losing money right actually. and i think there'll I be think more Providence, right yeah i think the, the whole harmless about the number of kids in the system is no longer um going to be in effect that money runs out next year they're subsidizing kid they they're losing uh school population and, and those seats the money follows the kid they're paying for kids who were not there right. and covid year. they kind of kept everyone status quo um, but now the, the Department of Ed and the governor's budget indicates that's going to end. So it may not happen this fiscal year, but I think it's going to happen next fiscal year. And I think that's where they're most, from the, right. from a city town perspective, that's where they're most afraid of. But I do think probably the hammer will drop next budget year when we'll all these that. residual funds um, run out. Can you read a budget? I can read a budget, and what it always does is grows, generally. It never <laughs> shrinks. So the government, as you can see, it just keeps growing, growing. And even when you think it's supposed to shrink, it doesn't shrink by as much as you thought. And the problem is, is that we always, when money is here, we make commitments, we create programs, we don't want to give them up once the, even the, the spigot is, is shut off, and then you end up with a structural budget deficit. And they're already projecting, I think in a couple of years, it's going to be over $200 million. So we're going to be back in the cycle of structural deficits, how we're going to do, how we're going to fix that. And it's always going to be like, well, we need to have this increase this fee and increase this little tax. But that's the problem is when you get money from someplace in the government, they start spending it and you don't want to give up that new program. You don't want to give up that new uh, concept that you want to spend. And I think the challenge with the General Assembly is, is that at least in the House, it, there's a much more a progressive element there than it ever has been. So it's going to be very difficult to make these these cuts Even or these choices. Left, Even since really I left, absolutely, left. yes, yes. What about the argument there's so much federal money coming through? I mean, so much of our budget is Medicaid and Medicare, and so that boosts it. But at the same time, that money, some of that money is not going to be there in the out year. So as Steve said, you're looking again at $200, $300 million potential deficits. What about the argument it's so high because of the federal money? I mean, I think that's a legitimate argument. I mean, I, when I was there, I think half of it, four, I think $4.5 billion was, was federal money or $3 billion. Um, so that money always there is there. 
The, the issue really is on Medicaid stuff. I mean, we have hospitals and, and, and providers indicating we need to boost our rates, right? And it doesn't seem that that, that was done in this budget um, because we are losing doctors. We're losing the support staff that we need to, you know. That should have been done years yeah. ago, though, right? Yeah, and I thought we were going to do that this year. At least he was kind of, the governor was kind of indicating that we might look at the primary care doctor issue. And I didn't see that come through. And, and that was a little disappointing. I, I, think, I think the health care issue is something that's going to be, will hit us pretty hard within the next couple of years. I mean, we have the Attorney General indicating that we might have some hospital closures. Um, we have providers indicating that they can't get people to, to practice in Rhode because the rates are so low. Okay. So I think that's something that's going to have to be looked at very carefully. What else stood out to you in the budget? I was a little surprised. I've been looking at the RIPTA issue, you know, and the support there. And I think if we want to do a lot of the climate change issues, you know, or goals that we're setting, that we have to increase mass transit, and then it doesn't seem to be that kind of effort to really want to get behind RIPTA and figure out. But the talk about a one-time fix. They're using $10 million of non, it's, it's federal ARPA money that they redirected that's not being used, and they're worried about it, use it or lose it. So yeah. they're plugging that hole like they don't want to do just to get through this year. That's right. There's no long-term vision, it seems. I can say that really with Governor McKee, I don't know what his vision is for the state. You know, um, I thought he did a great job with the state of the state speech. I felt he was more commanding, more comfortable in his role. But then I'm thinking, Team Rhode Island, you know, is that really your vision, you know, for, for, the, for the state? And where are we going? I, I just feel that he hasn't been able to present, move from being a mayor to a governor to look broadly at the state and say, here's my vision for the state of Rhode Island and here's how we're going to get there. He's basically a basketball coach running the state right now. <laughs> Okay, when that speech is, and it was a good speech, okay? And Do you, you have can the t-shirt yet? Team yeah, Rhode I just had Team Rhode Island, and we're all one team, and we're all together. It's great. But in the end, Ra-Ra is not going to fix our bridges, fund our programs, and make us more competitive tax-wise with other states. But he has made education a top priority, and he's, and he's pushing the Learn 365, which I know is some, somewhat controversial, but he's putting money between, uh, for that. He's putting money for a new, new center at RIC. Um, he's putting more money in uh, investment for URI. So I, I do think that ec economic growth will come with a better education system. And setting a goal, setting a goal to meet Massachusetts, I forgot what, what, by what day. 2030. 2030. I think that's an admirable goal, and we need to get there. Um, the question is whether we have a legislature who wants to get there as well. Um, well, you were there for the standardized tests, non-standardized yeah, tests. Testing every, uh, yeah. teacher evaluations every year, let's not yeah. do it every year. I mean, you know, we, we got to figure out we're going to get there. I, I think, but the, putting that goal out there, um, by the governor, I think is something that we all should be getting behind because in the long term, that will make us a better state. It's one thing to state a goal. It's another thing to have a plan to get there. And here we are 2024, so we have six years to get there. And I don't know what the plan is just to try to get students back in school for boosting attendance and the 365 after school just providing activities for them. I think we really need to roll up our sleeves and get into the classrooms and find out why are our test scores so low? And what can we be doing to address those rather than here's some after school activities and by the way, we want to make sure your, your attendance that you're there, it's, uh, you know, in the classroom. Well, I think the after school activities are it's learning opportunities. It's not like, you know, it's not the chess club, right? They're there to, you know, boost the But what about when that money runs out? Well, I mean, that's, that, is, that is the concern about cities and towns. But I mean, that's, 
But again, that money, if we're serious about improving education and we have some results from this program, then I think the legislature and the governor probably will say we need to continue it. And that will have to be, but we have to have the commitment to do that. But, but locally funded or state funded? Well, that's, that's the bigger issue. The other thing, Steve, is $350 million in bonds. Now, I know we're rolling off some debt, but we've always taken out a lot of money over the years. So in effect, it's putting it on the credit card. And I understand for maybe something like a state archives museum, it's a, you know, it's a building you want to pay the mortgage off. But the cybersecurity and the URI, we're going the bonding route on that. I'm not a big fan of, of debt, and particularly when you have debt now where interest rates are at basically 20-year highs approximately. So although some debt's rolling off, doesn't mean you have to take on more debt automatically. Mm. Maybe it'd just be wiser to just take a break on some of these things, prioritize. So the more money you have to spend on debt, you know, for interest for debt, means less money you can spend on education for certain things that we're talking about for regular recurring operating expenses. So there's always a trade-off, and you have to prioritize. And debt is usually not the best. And we took, out, we took out, what, two $250 million bonds for the school reconstruction, right? right? right. So, again, that's a, that's a question for the treasurer, but I've always wondered, we've had such a high debt level, wouldn't it be nice at some point to say, well, we really don't have that much we need to pay off? I mean, that would be great. But once again, and I know we've said it a million times on this, on this program, Voters always approve the bond yep. issues. It's so rare when we don't. The only one that's ever gone down, do you know which one? It was the Heritage Harbor Museum. Heritage yeah. Hall, yeah, museum. I don't know why, but it went down in a flaming mess. But you know what happens? There's a lot of promotion on the bond issue, all the wonderful things the bond issue is going to accomplish. And then you have like the fine little print that says how much the debt service on it is going to be, which is pretty you know, significant when you look at $350 million of bond issue. But I think voters just think if it's free money, it's just like, oh, bond is like free money. If it's on the ballot, it must be, we must be able to afford it. Right, right. <laughs> uh, law enforcement officers' bill of rights, been a lot of talk, but not much action the last couple of years. They, uh, the speaker said they just kind of ran out of time. Clearly, it wasn't the priority that he needed to get it across the finish line. The, the news this week, Mike, is the Senate has a bill. It's the same bill they passed last year, but with some pretty significant changes. Look, you deal with municipal law all the time. So what do you, what do you think about the changes? Leah Boyd's been around for 50 years. So I think the, one of the benefits of this reform or, or the, uh, the bill is that they extend the amount of time from three days to, I think, 14 days, which uh, an officer can be suspended before you have to go to a leave without hearing. Pay. Without pay. Yep. I think that's good. I think actually think it probably should be higher than that, but at least 14 seems a little bit more reasonable than three. Um, I think that's important. Um, I think the Senate bill also expands, uh, ex expands the panel a little bit. I think it puts a, a, a former retired judge or a, a current judge of the Superior Court. I think it's retired judge on, on good... I think that's a good reform because a lot of the issues are, you know, evidence and legal issues and, and arguments that right now it's a panel of basically police officers who really might so not have that experience. three officers plus the Plus a plus superior court sitting judge. Right. And I think the Senate has a someone from the uh, Nonviolence non Institute. Right. I'm not so sure about that. I don't really know the specifics about that. Um, Having a judge, I think, would be helpful, help uh, expedite the process, get some of the legal issues decided, you know, by a judge instead of a, a, a panel of uh, police officers who really don't have that much experience. I think the problem we're going to have, though, is that you have a, a group in, this, in the House who really want to get rid of the bill altogether. Mm. Um, and get That's rid of just the not going to happen. <laughs> you know, and, I, and it may, because of that, um, again, being the House a little bit more progressive than the Senate uh, at, the, at the, this time, I don't know what's going to happen. But those are good steps I think the Senate has taken. I think it's a good starting point. Hopefully they can compromise. Um, and it's, it definitely needs reform. There's no question about it. 
And then when you have the Senate president and the Senate majority leader as the main sponsors of the bill, you know that has a little bit more push going forward. So again, we'll have to see what happens on the House side. It also provides more transparency, allowing the chief of police to be able to speak a little bit more freely about you know the incident or, or the alleged incident and potentially release videos you know so many you know body cam videos now for transparency i think that we've seen since 2020 this we need movement on leobor there's you know the public wants more transparency they want more um, understanding of how law enforcement does their work but one of the things you know i was going through the bill and steve i was trying to remember in cranston too when we've had police officers out on on leave Yes. That goes beyond 180 days. It goes on and And on. the paycheck doesn't stop. No. Yeah, you know, so th that issue, I, I mean, maybe that's too, pick, you know, t taking too much off to do right now beyond the, you know, the issues that you said. But that always struck me that that just doesn't seem right, that a police officer could be home for a year or two. I think we saw that happen. Sergeant Hanley. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm on the camp that's going to surprise some people, but I, years ago, I wrote a column in opposition to the to LIBOR. I don't think it should exist. Actually, people should understand LIBOR does not exist in most states, okay? Uh, this state, we've had it 50 years ago, et cetera. And the improvements, they are making some improvements and it does need changing, obviously. But I think, first of all, there should not be a majority of the people on this should be police officers, okay? Police officers already have civil protection, civil service protections, regardless of LIBOR. Also, I think public officials should be able to talk about what occurs. And under the current law, you can't, basically. Um, I think I agree that you need more flexibility for being, you know, um, basically uh, off the job without pay. I mean, these are, these are, there are lots of abuses here, and they've crept up over time, and there are lots of examples of people who have done something wrong, who are police officers, and they're on the payrolls indefinitely, and then they have a majority, they're judged by a majority of fellow police officers, and then the city government or the municipal government can't talk about it. Yeah. And it's, I think it's, that, it's ridiculous. But I think that 14 days is going to help because short of going for a firing, there are things that 14 days sends a message. And I think a lot of the chiefs are like, well, I just don't want to go two days. Maybe we should go to the hearing. We'll be talking more about this. Let me get we're, we're actually running out of time. Let me get to outrages and or kudos. Uh, Lisa, let's begin with you. OK, so Donald Trump can be outrageous in so many ways and we get sensitized by it. But here we go again after he won in New Hampshire. Instead of being gracious in his victory speech, he had to go after his opponent, Nikki Haley, as viciously as he did, and then to bring up the dress that she was wearing and saying the fancy dress, maybe not so fancy, you know, probably thinking of what his wife wears. I just thought, oh, come on, you know, here we are, you know, mid into the 21st century, and we're still talking about what women wear. We don't hear about what men wear mm. when they're doing it. So I just thought, again, outrage. Yeah. Steve, what do you have? Um, outrage, I already, we already talked about the bridge, so that would be my outrage every week if I was on this show. But I'll, my Steve in the green room told me, Hummel, you got to find a way for everybody to have an outrage every week until that bridge is fixed. That could be 10 years of outrage. That, that's right, Jim. That's speculation. That's, uh, <laughs> yeah, don't get ahead of the curve. I'll phrase my, my disappointment is the fact that our political system has resulted in the two presidential nominees being two unpopular people. And one of, around the age of 80, one of whom is likely to be headed towards assisted living and another one who is likely to be leaded to a conviction in federal court. It is, I don't know what's wrong with our political system, but it is a major disappointment. 350 million people in this country and we can't do better than this. That's right. How many people are saying that? On both sides. Like, um, I think both sides. My outrage is this. Um, it looks like the U.S. Senate is on the verge of 
uh, finally getting some bipartisan uh, uh, results on immigration reform. Uh, worked really hard over the last, uh, I think, six months on it, only to, be, only to be told that the House doesn't want to take it up because President Trump is telling them not to. Yeah. I think that's outrageous. I think, uh, I think both parties have now recognized, finally, that immigration is a problem. The problem at the border is, seems to be getting worse, um, and they, we need some solutions, but again, for, because of politics, that it's going to be uh, stymied in the House. We have just about a minute left, so let me ask you, I've been talking to a lot of people about this. Biden seems to have been so behind the curve. I don't know if he's listening to the progressives. It seems like everybody agrees. You see all these people coming across the borders and now Chicago and Boston and New York, they're all overrun. Why hasn't he, if for no other reason than to take the issue away from the Republicans, why wasn't he working on this six months ago to try to get to put money into it, to enforcement and all of that, and then take the issue away from well, your Well, I think, I think he's tried, but the problem is is that the, the, the House really just want to keep this issue alive. And, and I think it's, what's happening is I think the Senate has always been the more reasonable branch in this, in this regard, but um, I think he could have done a better job of maybe on the bully pulpit and you know, talking about it a little bit more. But I think he's got a real problem with the more conservative House, and they really see this as a, a winning issue for Republicans nationally, and they don't want to really solve the problem. 15 seconds. The House and the Senate were both controlled by Democrats a couple of years ago. And what did they do on the border? Yeah. Zero. Okay? Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they could, they could have done something at least not maybe a home run. Well, except but, in the Senate, you need 60 votes, and that's not, well, that wasn't going to happen. All right. I'm sorry. We'll talk to you about that afterwards. I know. <laughs> Folks, it always goes quickly. We appreciate your time. Steve and Mike and uh, Lisa, good to see you again. <laughs> Getting around Providence is not as easy as it used to be. Uh, thank you for coming. Come back next week. We'll have all the very latest news and analysis here as the Lively Experiment continues. We hope you have a great weekend. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... Hi, I'm John Hazen White, Jr. For over 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS.